for our second episode of Huckin' History, we are going to tackle the society that Huck and Jim traveled through and look at how it reflects Southern society at the time. Today, we also have a special guest who will be talking about the bizarre historical figure who the king in Huck Finn is based on. Let's hop into it. Disclaimer to the listener, we understand that our podcast may encompass some potentially sensitive and controversial material and would like to make it clear that it is not our intention to offend anyone. All comments are simply our interpretation of an American classic. All episodes were recorded in one take and minor errors may be present in our content. Any more stalling, why don't we dive into our planned program? So our first topic of discussion for today will be looking at the fact that the when Hawk and Jim arrived in a small town in 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 Arkansas that that they witnessed the murder of a drunk man by a, by a man by the name of Sherburn and we'll be looking at the fact that the town folks wanted to lynch this white man but ultimately backed down and, and looking into whether the statistics of lynchings of both white and black people in the American South reflect this occurrence in the book and whether this event would have gone differently had had Sherburn been African-American. And ultimately, our main question is, was was this historically accurate? Thank you, Sid. Um, In Chapter 21, Sherburn murders someone right in front of the whole entire town, therefore, like, many, many individuals. And the white mob insists that he gets lynched, but, you know, Sherburn, as they're, you know, attempting to lynch him, uh, he ends up scaring off the crowd. So, therefore, this lynching actually doesn't take place. Um, If Sherburn were a black man, this lynching would have definitely occurred because blacks accused of attempted murder were instantly lynched. Uh, We see this in historical content. Uh, this is a fact because blacks had no recourse during this time. Uh, they remained impoverished, endangered, and without rights. Uh, whites could accuse at will and rarely did a slave, uh, defeat these crime accusations. Uh, historical evidence shows that whites weren't lynched in Southern states unless the white helped, uh, a slaves in any way or believed in anti-lynching. Uh, and also this chapter took place in Arkansas, which is a Southern state. So in conclusion, the fact that Sherburne wasn't lynched in Arkansas is historically accurate. But if he were a black man, he would have been instantly lynched. Can and I ju- if, yeah, yeah, for sure. Go can, on. So I think so you said um, you talk about Sherburne ending up scaring the crowd. And I'm agreeing with I'm I absolutely agree with what you're saying. I just want to go off of that a little bit. Sherburn being a white male, being able to scare off the crowd and sway their opinions, even for a short period of time, just shows the significance and how differently um, African-Americans and white people were treated. Uh, As we see in history, uh, African-Americans were considered three-fifths of a man at the time. But it's, it's, I think it's very significant to point out that the white man was able to sway the crowd's opinion for that short time being. Whereas a black man would have had no mercy shown against him. And yeah. I just think that's important to point out to keep going. So um, the reason why I think this, if, if Sherburn were a black man, he would have been instantly lynched is because uh, historical evidence shows from, you know, the 1800s to, you know, the mid 1900s around, you know, 
4,743 lynching, uh, lynchings occurred in the U.S., and 72.7% were black, and only 273 were white. And many of the whites were lynched in the South for helping blacks, as like I said before, or being anti-lynching. And lynchings in the West were usually of white people, and lynchings were either because of murders or cattle thieves in the West. But this is Arkansas, so, you know, this is a southern state. Lynchings after slavery would occur to enforce white supremacy and intimidate blacks through racial terrorism. And most lynch victims were accused of murder or attempted murder. And uh, equal, justice, equal justice initiatives stated that around 4,084 African Americans were lynched between 1877 and 1950. So this is a little later, but it just shows, you know, the significant numbers that occurred in the South. And something that spurred, you know, the civil rights movement was the lynching of Emmett Till, who was a 14-year-old kid, and he was lynched. And this literally, it sparked the civil rights movement. And this black prominence during Reconstruction caused a lot of lynchings uh, in the 19th and the 20th century. Because, you know, as blacks were able to hold public office, as they were able to do all these things, you know, the whites felt you know, superior. They felt that this was not okay. Therefore, these lynchings would occur more and more. So as we sum this all up, like historically, it would have been very, very, you know, it would have been very definite that um, if Sherburn were black, he were to be lynched in this, in this, in this time, because number one, like I said before, uh, it's a Southern state and attempted murder was something that blacks were accused of a lot. And just the fact that he was an African-American that had no rights and he just remained, you know, less than for his whole entire life. So therefore, in conclusion, if, you know, if Sherburn were an African-American man, he would have been lynched. Uh, but since Sherburn was a white man, he he fought off the crowd and, you know, he caused the crowd to just go away. And but, yeah. I, I want to add in, let me know if you guys agree or disagree with this, but how this correlates to Huck and Jim themselves, the, the, the whites in this town, the white supremacist people, you didn't always, they were super unpredictable, we see in the book. Who knows? A lot of people hated African-Americans at times, so, and a lot of lynchings happened for reasons they shouldn't. So that just, to me, that makes me think about Huck's mind. And the fear he might have had, because at that point he had built a pretty strong relationship with Jim. Because you're just a little kid, like Huck at this point, and you're bringing in this African-American to a town where stuff like this is going on. I just think that's that's puts into perspective the bravery, uh, first off, Huck had. And, and I just think that's important to point out. Mm-hmm. Well, so, like, agree with... Uh your point about like how it demonstrates Huck's bravery but however there is like no indication necessarily that the townsfolk are white supremacists per se yeah but there's no do... there's no historical evidence that they're white supremacists well i mean yeah and, and also you know like in the like it, well like in the text we're looking at like there's no indication at, at least at first you know that they're white supremacists however i feel like you know like what you were talking about in terms of how Huck could see the behavior of the townsfolk in regards to Sherburn as a threat mm-hmm. to, you know, like, like as like a threat to him and Jim. 
I like that is very valid because he sees the you know the, the, the violent behavior uh-huh. of the townsfolk, and and then of course, I mean, he sees that well, Sherburn is ultimately able to uh, scare off the crowd, you know, saying that like if they are going to be lynched, there has to be done at night and whatever these southern fashion and leave and take your half a man with you so he scares them away by basically by basically calling them cowards mm-hmm. but you know it's it's a very valid point that perhaps huck and jim may realize that they're not in the same spot like they're not in the same position to maybe be able to scare off an angry mob and i think you know, this also a kind of shows perhaps some of the white like the like in 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 the society in like that Huck and Jim come across throughout the uh, the piece, perhaps you know like the white privilege that was absolutely present, and like the um like the position that Sherburn who had literally just murdered someone in front of the whole crowd that the fact that he had he was in a position to be able to kind of like scare off the townsfolk. Mm-hmm. And there were multiple so, people in the town. Like, oh, it's yeah. not just... It was Cerberus was one individual, and he scared people off. That he just shows off. you how superior yeah. and how how courageous he he felt just because of his skin color. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, I feel like it's hard... It, I guess, you know, it's harder to say, like, the courage is because of his skin color, but definitely his... The his, confidence. The, oh yes. Oh, I mean, his confidence is most likely the result of of his position in town as you know a white member of the society at the time, mm-hmm. and like by like of course having that like that kind of privilege that when that made all of the difference in oh yeah how sure. effective he was like it'd be hard like it's just and like that really I think and perhaps you know like, that specific event. It demonstrates, like the un, like well, you know, of course, the uh, the unfairness of the society at the like of these southern society during that time, and just like how, how it seems, if like just backwards, you, you know, this guy just committed a crime. He murdered someone, and while yes, you know, the, in best case scenario, that should be taken up in a in. A court of law, and in, like in no ways is a lynching ever like the correct action to take. Mm-hmm. But then, when you know, as as previously mentioned, the fact that there were thousands of lynchings happening throughout the South at that time, it just it doesn't make sense that someone who has literally murdered a man in front of the whole town is going to be the one that's not lynched. It's it's, just, it, it, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense, but it's very historically... It, it's so contradictory. It's, it doesn't make sense, but it's historically accurate, though. You know? Mm-hmm. Like, I, you think, know yeah. I just whites, think that shows... Keep going, Leo. No. I mean, whites, you know, like I said before, they had specific reasons for whites to be lynched. See? There weren't many, you know, whites that were lynched due to murder. So... It's it's very wrong, and I get it, Sid, but it's just contradictory to how it actually went. 
I think that also oh, yeah. shows how dangerous potentially it could have been for Huck and Jim because Sherburn was able to sway the crowd. But if Huck and Jim down the line go somewhere and make some small mistake that is seen by anybody, it's going to be a young white kid and a slave. So they really don't have much room to try and persuade people. I mean, of course, they trick people. We see that in the book. But if they're to make some kind of mistake, people aren't going to be as as forgiving or as as swayed as they were when Sherburne persuaded them to lay off for the time being. Yes, absolutely. And like, and like, you know, like, that's what like I feel as though the uh, this was a choice made by Twain when he was, you know, writing the piece that like include this event it shows it, it shows the messed up conscious mm-hmm. of the yeah. society that they're dealing with. and it, it just it what happens doesn't make sense yeah but but perhaps that's the point it's showing that the society like you know that the society the huck and jim are going through in itself it just it doesn't make sense and that helps to develop their actions i feel they aren't they aren't safe as their journey goes on mm-hmm now we're going to be hearing from our guest star of the podcast, who chooses to keep their name anonymous, but is an Emperor Norton scholar. The floor is yours. So, greetings. I am a guest on this podcast, and I will be talking about one of the relatively minor characters from The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, which is the king, this old guy who claims to be a descendant of the king of France and is now the rightful king of France and ends up turning out to really be a con artist. But one thing people really often don't know about the king is that he was actually based off of a real person. And that person was Emperor Norton I of the United States, who lived during the Civil War times primarily. He declared himself emperor in 1859 and quote-unquote reigned until his death in 1880. So I will be talking a little bit about his life, and then whether or not the king is an accurate portrayal of him. So he lived most of his early life in South Africa, but then he moved to the United States and went to San Francisco. And for a while, he actually, due to a large inheritance, he did fairly well there. He was involved in the rice trade from China. And while he was involved in that, he made a boatload of money. He got really rich off of it. He went to fancy restaurants and stayed in fancy hotels and all that. He was part of the upper-class lifestyle of San Francisco. Then, one day, he made some really bad deals after the market crashed there, and he lost almost all his money And all of a sudden, he was living in a boarding house, renting out a room for 50 cents a night, and he was basically broke. So nobody really knows what happened after that, but he might have had a nervous breakdown or something happened in his head. But then, in 1859, he declared himself to be fed up with the current political system and made himself the emperor of the United States. Now, throughout his reign... Uh, he became actually moderately popular around San Francisco, and he was a he was a tourist attraction of sorts. 
he did get quite a few privileges. Like he could go to a lot of theaters and get box seats for free because he was the emperor. People would give him clothes so their store could say outfitters to the emperor and other things like that. And he actually gained a little bit of power, but most of his decrees were obviously at least while he was alive by the rest of the world. Um, he did try in some ways to stop the civil war while it was going on, but none of this stuff was taken seriously since obviously he had no real right to rule. But still, he was fairly popular among the San Francisco residents. And when he died in 1880, about 10,000, maybe up to even 30,000 people attended his funeral procession through San Francisco, which was at least 4% of the city's population at the time. So whether or not they took his reign seriously or not, it should be noted that he actually was rather respected and popular around San Francisco. Mm-hmm. So later after his death, uh, shortly after his death, Mark Twain published The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, and he claimed that the character of the king from that was based on Emperor Norton I. And while some people can see some similarities between them, I don't actually believe that the king is a very accurate portrayal of the emperor. Now, obviously, there are some similarities in the fact that they were both kind of con artists. I mean, the king, I mean, declaring himself to be the king was definitely a con artist move. He also put on a bunch of fake shows, got a bunch of money from it. He also declared himself a pirate and got donations, and that was a bit of a con artist thing to do. And Emperor Norton did similar things, like uh, he would often print money with his face on it and give it to stores who would actually accept it as legal tender often. I'm not sure how that worked. Um, He also sold bonds in, in the United States, which never paid back, but they were supposed to be paid back in 1880, but he died in 1880. So it's unknown if he actually was willing to pay those back but he probably wasn't going to from what most people know about him. Now, despite the fact that they were both con artists, the portrayal of the king as being a very big racist, he didn't really uh, regard Jim as the same level as the rest of them. Emperor Norton really was not uh, a racist or a prejudiced person at all. He was very big on equal rights for all people. There was actually a time he stopped a mob who were attacking a Chinese immigrant, which, I mean, considering the fact that he had the bravery to do that, it can be concluded pretty easily that he, he definitely believed in his cause. So that's one of the things that is definitely very different about them, that um, Emperor Norton was actually very pro-civil rights. And another thing is that's different about them, some of Emperor Norton's ideas actually later came to fruition. Unlike the king, he never actually got any power. Um, The king never actually got any power, but Emperor Norton did get a little bit of power, at least posthumously. And Mm -hmm. with this power, some of his decrees were actually come to realization. 
Uh, one of these, he built a bridge in San Francisco, which now has a plaque on it dedicated to Emperor Norton. And then the, the biggest thing that happened that he decree, decreed was he decreed for the establishment of a League of Nations. And the League of Nations was actually eventually put into practice at the end of the First World War. Obviously, this was posthumously. But it was what Emperor Norton proposed. And later, after World War II, it succeeded into the League of Nations we know today. So in some ways, Emperor Norton had an extremely huge impact in his indirect creation of the League of Nations. And for those reasons, I believe that the king is not a very good portrayal of Emperor Norton I of the United States. Thank you. So how long, how, how long have you known about this Emperor Norton? Well, the first time I heard about him was actually a really long time ago, probably in elementary school when I read about him in Ripley's Believe It or Not. But I really didn't start learning a lot about him until I started reading Huck Finn. And then I did a little bit more looking into Huck Finn. And that's when I learned that the king was actually based off of Emperor Norton. And I decided to learn a little bit more about Emperor Norton. Another thing, you know, the listeners are certainly are certainly curious is like in your opinion like who do you think the king could be a better representation of or are you not sure I'm, i think the king is probably uh and and i would say the duke as well they were both pretenders and there were a lot of pretenders to the french throne at that point uh during the time that this book takes place the bourbon restoration in, in france was back and i believe the uh the king of france was still there um mm -hmm. napoleon had gone and the monarchy had returned for a brief period of time at least that's what i believe and i just think he's a better representation of, of one of those pretenders to the french throne Follow along next time as we take an in-depth look at the character of Huckleberry Finn and look through history to find figures that draw various similarities to him.